Route 66. Today we continue our journey through the Bible from the book of Genesis through the book of Revelation. We're cruising through 66 books, one each Sunday. After last Sunday's overview of the first book, Genesis, this morning then we're ready to study the second book, which is Exodus. Let's just dive right in. We'll begin with the structure. How does the book of Exodus fit into the overall structure of the Old Testament? Well, as we learned last week, the Old Testament consists of three major types of books, historical, poetical, and prophetical. The first 17 books are historical in nature. The first five are called the Pentateuch, or the Law of Moses. The last 12 are called the Books of History. The next five books are poetical books. We read there Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. The last 17 books are prophetical, the five major prophets and the 12 minor prophets, so named due to their length. Exodus, then, is the second historical book, and in fact, in the Hebrew, it actually begins with the word and, indicating that this book is just a continuation of the story of Genesis. Looking at the Old Testament from a chronological viewpoint, we still have the three major types of books, historical, poetical, and prophetical. But Exodus is the second of 11 books that form the actual Old Testament storyline. And from this historical framework, the poetical and prophetical books hang. For more information on that Old Testament structure, I just encourage you to listen to last Sunday's overview of Genesis and to pick up a copy of the lesson notes, which includes these charts that you can study on your own. So what is the structure of the book of Exodus itself? Well, Exodus is a Greek word that means exit, departure. Going out. Now, of course, is a reference to the story of the nation of Israel's exodus from bondage or slavery in Egypt. The actual word exodus appears in Exodus 19 and verse 1. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, that word left is the word exodus, from which the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, derives the name for this book. The original Hebrew title for the book was Wa'ala Shamath, which is translated, these are the names, which is actually the very first phrase that you'll find in Exodus 1 and verse 1. Now, as with Genesis, Moses was the author of Exodus. Exodus 24 and verse 4 tells us, Moses then wrote down everything the Lord God had said. And as we learned in our last lesson, it would be difficult to find any other author in Israel's history who was better prepared and qualified to write down the Pentateuch, the first five books of law. Moses was providentially prepared under the Holy Spirit's inspiration to gather all the available records, manuscripts, and oral narratives and put them in written form. In fact, unlike Genesis, whose time frame was some 300 years before Moses was born, Exodus was experienced firsthand by Moses, as was Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the remaining books of law, which is why they're oftentimes called the Law of Moses throughout the Bible. And I've listed a number of references there for you uh, that you could look up on your own that testify to the authorship of Moses. Now we're on this slide. The structure of Genesis itself 
easily divides itself into three geographical settings. Exodus chapters 1 through 12 takes place in Egypt itself. Spanning more than 400 years, these chapters tell of the bondage of the Israelites to the Egyptians. Their slavery became so oppressive that Exodus 2, 23 and 24 tells us the Israelites, go on, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God and God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham. Don't miss those words groaning and cried out. The Hebrew words here imply a desperate, agonizing groan and cry, an awful gut-wrenching wailing, actually. And God hears and responds, raising up Moses as Israel's deliverer and orchestrating the exodus through the plagues and commemorating it with the Passover. The next section, Exodus 13 through 18, takes place in the wilderness. Next slide. Spanning about two months in length, these chapters tell the stories of the crossing of the Red Sea, the provision of water and food, the man and quail, and Israel's first battle, the defeat of the Amalekites at Rephidim. Then finally, Exodus 19 verse and through 40 takes place at Mount Sinai and the regions nearby. Spanning about 10 months in length, these chapters tell of the giving of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, as well as the judicial and ceremonial laws, the inauguration of the high priests and the Levitical priesthood, and the planning and the building of the tabernacle. This section and the book of Exodus itself ends with the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle and the Shekinah glory of God, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, beginning to guide the nation of Israel on its journey to the promised land. Now with that overall structure in mind then, let's move on to the story. If Genesis is the first chapter in the story of the redemption of humankind, then Exodus is certainly the second chapter in that great story. In fact, the very simplest outline of Exodus would only have two parts to it. First, there would be redemption from Egypt, chapters 1 through 18, And second, there would be revelation from God in chapters 19 through 40. And within these two divisions, the story of Exodus can be summed up in eight great events. The first five events fall under the first division, the redemption from Egypt. And the first of those, of course, is the deliverer. Chapters 1 through 4, who, of course, is Moses. From the story of his birth, including his mother hiding him in the reeds along the Nile River and his subsequent finding and adopting by Pharaoh's daughter, it's readily apparent that God is orchestrating all of it. His name, Moses, which means I drew him out of the water. The storyline of Exodus continues with him being raised and educated in Pharaoh's household. And then after Moses killed an Egyptian who was severely beating a fellow Israelite, he had to flee for his life to Midian where he became a shepherd. Which, interestingly enough, by the way, Midian and where he fled to is where Mount Sinai is. Isn't that interesting that for 40 years Moses was a shepherd at Mount Sinai in the regions thereof? Don't you think that that was preparation for him to take the Israelites there? And God called Moses from the burning bush, Exodus 3 and verse 10. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. 
You might remember the story. After many, 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 many excuses, Moses returned to Egypt as Israel's deliverer. The second main event would be the plagues found in chapters 5 through 11. Actually, in chapters 5 through 7, the slavery and persecution of the Israelites only got worse upon Moses' arrival, leading then to the ten plagues that we find described in chapters 8 through 11. As you see them listed there in order in your notes, blood, frogs, gnats, flies, death of livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and the death of the firstborn male. The third great event would be the Passover in chapters 12 and 13. The Passover, or also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, is commanded and observed for the very first time. We'll come back to the significance of that in just a bit. The fourth great event would be the Exodus itself in chapters 14 and 15. The Red Sea parts, and Moses leads the Israelites. Remember, there were 70 of them that came to Egypt initially. Guess how many left? Two to three million Israelites. Moses leads them across on dry ground as the sea parts. And then in Exodus 14, 27, and 28, it tells us Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites out into the sea, not one of them survived. And Israelites' response to that, they sang a song. Chapter 15 records the song of Moses, which was led by Miriam, Moses and Aaron's sister. The fifth great event would be the food and water in Exodus chapters 15 through 18. I mean, how in the world do you feed and hydrate two to three million people in the middle of the desert? (laughs) Well, God provides water. First at the well of Marah, and then from the rock of Horeb at the mountain of God. And God provides food, first by the manna, which fell like dew from heaven every morning, and then by the quail that covered the camp each evening. Those are the first five events. The last three events fall under the second main division of Exodus, revelation from God. The first one, number six, is the Ten Commandments. Probably the most known story other than the Exodus of the book of Exodus itself. Exodus chapters 19 through 24. Arriving at Mount Sinai, Moses ascends to the mountain as God's presence descends upon the mountain, covering that mountain in fire and smoke. And here God gives the moral law, the Ten Commandments, to govern the people's character and behavior, along with judicial and civil laws to govern the people as a nation and ceremonial laws to govern their worship of him. The seventh great event would be the tabernacle. In chapters 25 through 31 and again in 34 through 40, God gives Moses very clear detailed instructions for the building of a possible and portable place of worship, a place where God's presence could dwell at the very center of the encampment of Israel as they journeyed to the promised land. I wish we had time to explore the details of the tabernacle. This is so enlightening in and of itself. Perhaps we'll have to come back to this at some point in the future when we're finished with this Route 66 series. But in the meantime, I have provided you with a diagram of the tabernacle and the encampment of the nation of Israel by tribes around that tabernacle. And whatever else you might note, I want you to see that God is at the center of it all. He is to be the focal point of everything that his people are and do. 
You can study more about that in a bit. But we need to get on with the eighth great event, and that's the calf. Exodus chapters 32 and 33. Sadly, the story of the designing and the building of the tabernacle is interrupted in chapters 32 and 33 with the sin of the people in making and worshiping an idol in the form of a golden calf. Exodus 32.1 tells us when the people saw that Moses was long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. And if it had not been for Moses' intercession and intervention, God, we're told in the scripture, was actually of a mind that he was going to destroy all of those two or three million people. Well, thankfully, the story of Exodus ends on a brighter note as the tabernacle or tent of meeting and all of its accessories are set up for the very first time. And Exodus 40 verse 34 tells us, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now we'll pick up the story right there next Sunday when we look at the book of Leviticus together. That's the story. Which brings us then to the Savior. Each Sunday as we focus on one of the 66 books of the Bible, one of our priorities is to point out where and how Jesus is to be found in the narrative of that book. Now please remember that there's one grand central theme, a single scarlet thread, if you will, that runs from Genesis through Revelation, and that is salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so here in Exodus, we want to stop, look, and listen for the Savior. Where and how does Jesus Christ appear in the narrative of Exodus? Actually, there are many references and allusions to the Messiah and Savior throughout the book of Exodus. I just want to zero in on one of those, and that is the Passover. Earlier, I asked you to turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 12. Hopefully, you have your finger there and you're ready to go. So follow along right now as I read verses 12 through 14. On that same night, I will pass, this is God speaking, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So how does that portray Jesus, the Savior? Well, let's read 1 Corinthians 5, verses 7 and 8 out loud together. Would you read it with me? You see, Christ is our Passover lamb. He has been sacrificed for us. So let the real feast begin. Get rid of all the old yeast, the yeast of hatred and evil. Throw it out so we can feast on the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Don't miss that first phrase. Christ is our Passover lamb lamb. It all began with the first Passover here in Exodus as each faithful Israelite family killed a spotless lamb and sprinkled its blood on the sides and on the top of the door frames of the houses where they lived. And as God promised in Exodus 12, 13, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
Passover. So the plague of death of the firstborn did not touch those who were under the blood. And even so, if we are under the blood today, the blood of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, so the curse of death does not touch us. We have life, eternal and everlasting. By grace we are saved through faith in the Lamb of God. Now there are so many, many other parallels between the Passover lamb of the Old Testament and the Passover lamb of the New Testament. Here are just a few. John the Baptist testified of Jesus in John 1 and verse 29. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 12 verse 1 tells us that six days before the Passover on the Saturday of the last week of his life, Jesus came to Bethany, which was just east of Jerusalem. And then verse 12 tells us that the very next day, Sunday, the day we usually call Palm Sunday... By the way, that Sunday was the day of the lamb selection. That's when the Passover lambs were selected from the flock to make their way to the temple for their sacrifice on Passover day, which would be the following Friday. On that very day, Jesus, our Passover lamb, made his way into Jerusalem, and into the temple. Then you read in chapter 23 of Luke that it tells us that on the day of his crucifixion, which was the actual day of Passover, Friday, at precisely 3 p.m. in the afternoon, which was the exact time, by the way, that the Passover lambs were sacrificed. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Now, folks, those are not coincidences. Each illustrates God's plan of redemption, salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb. How it unfolded precisely as God himself had planned for it to be from the very beginning. Now, time doesn't allow us to dig any further, but I just point out that the Passover isn't the only place that Jesus appears in the narrative of Exodus. We would have to look into the high priest. We'd have to take a closer look at the seven feasts of the Jews. We'd have to look at the materials and the color and the furniture and the arrangement of the tabernacle. As I said, that's a sermon for the future. And on and on we could go. Pointing to the Messiah, the Savior. Which brings us to our final point, and that's the sense. As we wrap up every one of these lessons, I want to offer the sense of the books of the Bible. In other words, what practical take-home lessons can we apply to our daily lives from the book? In today's case, what instructions, what applications can we glean from the book of Exodus? Certainly there are many, many things to be learned from Exodus, but I want to focus on four lessons that I think we can learn about the nature of God Himself. The first is God's preeminence. God's preeminence. Now I mentioned this first because it is first. <laughs> Let's read the first two of the Ten Commandments out loud together. Read these with me. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. These two commandments are all about God's preeminence. He is the one and the only God. There is no other. He is first before and above anyone or anything else. Now Exodus illustrates God's preeminence again and again. We already mentioned the tabernacle and the encampment of the nation of Israel and how God placed himself at the very center of that encampment reminding his people that he is first. He is the center. He's the core the focus of everything. But let's not overlook the ten plagues. <laughs> when Moses first approached Pharaoh telling him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go, Pharaoh just kind of grunted and said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? Well, guess what? The ten plagues are God's answer to Pharaoh's question. Now, time doesn't allow us to dig into it in today's lesson, but you need to know that each of these ten plagues, blood, frogs, gnats, flies, death of livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and the death of the firstborn, each of these ten plagues was a very direct and deliberate affront to one of the gods of Egypt. God was saying to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians, and us. So you want to know who I am, do you? <laughs> Let me show you who I am. I am preeminent. I am God. There is no other God beside me. And you shall have no other gods before me. Now again, I mentioned this as the first lesson because it is the first lesson. I call it the first button principle. When buttoning a vest or a sweater or a shirt, it's critically important that you get the first button <laughs> correct. And if you do, then all of the other buttons line up. If you don't, then all of the other buttons are going to be off. And so it is with God's preeminence. If we don't get this first one right, none of the others are going to line up. If we don't put God first before and above anyone or anything else, then the rest of our lives are going to be out of whack. <laughs> Enough said. So first, the sense of Exodus is all about God's preeminence. Number two, I see here a lesson about God's presence. God's presence. Earlier we read in Exodus 40 and verse 34 how the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Well the book actually ends in verses 36 through 38. In all the travels of the Israelites whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. 
Now Exodus 13 verses 21 and 22 puts it a little more simply. It just simply says, By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. God's presence. This visual presence of the Shekinah glory of God stayed with Israel all the way from Mount Sinai until they reached their destination, the promised land. Chris Tomlin wrote a song, I Will Follow. We sang it in this morning's pre-service praise and prayer time. And here are the first few lines. It says, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow. God's presence. Every day I pray that prayer for my life and for this church. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow. Isn't that what it's all about? (laughs) Living in God's presence? I mean, why would we want to live in any other way? When the Israelites sinned against God by making and worshiping the golden calf, God was so angry with them that he actually wanted to destroy the nation of Israel. And Moses interceded and intervened, begging for God's forgiveness. And God said, okay, I'm going to give up just a little bit here. You go on and you take these stubborn people on up to the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. Did you hear that? And Moses said, whoa, I'm out. And let's read these verses. What he said to God is so critical. Exodus 33 verses 15 and 16. Read them with me. If your presence does not go up with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? What else but your presence, God? How are we going to be any different from anybody else if you don't go with us? It's a distinguishing mark. And I pray that all the time for us. God, as a church, Springville Naz, where you go, we'll go. Where you stay, we'll stay. And when you move, we'll move. Will follow. I do not want to be ahead of God. I do not want to be behind God. I want to be in step with God and His presence. So, second, the sense of Exodus is all about God's presence. Number three, it's about God's provision. I see a lesson here about God's provision. I'll get straight to the point here. When and where God calls, God provides. A little side note, this is not in your notes, so just ignore me for a minute, Tawny, back there. If God has called you to lead children in children's church, where God calls you, He will provide for you. End of advertisement. Back to our notes. The book of Exodus teaches us 
over and over again about God's provision. God provided everything Moses needed to lead his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. For every excuse that Moses offered, where he said again and again, God, I'm not, God, I'm not, God, I'm not. God answered, I am. I am. I am. After the final plague, when the Pharaoh and the Egyptians begged the Israelites to hurry and leave the country, they didn't just escape with their lives. No, they plundered the Egyptians, it says. He, he provided them with gold, silver, and clothing. I mean, they left with an abundance because of God's provision. And when they ran out of water and food in the wilderness, God provided in God's own words, at twilight you will eat meat, in the morning you will be filled with bread, then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. And on and on it continues throughout the book of Exodus, God's provision. Again, the point is, when and where God calls, God provides. God will never ever call you or lead you to do something without providing you with the means and the ability to do it. So third, the sense of Exodus is all about God's provision. Number four, I see here a lesson about God's protection. God's protection. We cannot leave our study of Exodus without taking a look at the Ten Commandments. Watch this with me. Ten Commandments. Let me ask you, how do you view these ten universal, timeless commands and principles in Exodus 20? I find that most people view the Ten Commandments as restrictive. Most people view the Ten Commandments as restrictive. Most people see God as some kind of a cosmic killjoy who has made this impossible list of rules and regulations, do's and don'ts, for us to follow. In fact, it is in our human fallen nature to rebel against these commands. Think about it with me. Somebody puts a sign on something that says, Don't touch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So there's a sign that says wet paint. What do you got to do? Touch it. Yeah, touch it, see whether it's wet. Somebody draws a line, says, don't cross this line. <laughs> it is in our depravity as human beings to rebel against these commands. 
We want to color outside the lines. We want to push the limits. We want to do it our way. After all, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Can I offer a bit of a different perspective? These Ten Commandments, these universal and timeless principles, are protective, not restrictive. Let me give you this illustration. Look at this illustration with me. You're inside this box. There's two ways of looking at the boundaries that are around you. You can look at them as being restrictive or you can look at them as being protective. Most of us, we're inside this box. We think, I don't want to say, there, this box, okay, let the building be the box, okay? We want outside. You're not going to tell me I can't go out there. I want what's out there. Look at all those people. They look like they're having fun. I want to go do that. I want to step over the boundary. I want to get outside the lines. And we see the commandments as being restrictive, and we rebel against them. May I suggest to you that the commandments are not restrictive, they are protective. Because God knows that if you get outside the lines, you're going to get hurt. There's dangers out there that you cannot even imagine. And God, who is your father, and you as his child, he loves you so much. He does not want you to get into trouble. And so he has designed these timeless universal principles to allow us to be protected. Because he loves us. Would you please read... Psalm 18 and verse 30 out loud with me. God's way is perfect. God's word is tried and true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. That word shield, by the way, in the Hebrew, is a word that means to surround, to wrap around with protection. That's a picture of our God. God wants to protect you. And that's why these boundaries exist. For your protection. So forth, the sense of Exodus is all about God's protection. God's preeminence, God's presence, God's provision, and God's protection. Four very solid lessons about God's nature that we can learn from the book of Exodus. Route 66. As we're cruising through the 66 books of the Bible today, we have focused on this book of Exodus, the structure, the story, the Savior, and the sense. We'll continue our journey next Sunday with the book of Leviticus. There are 27 chapters in the book of Leviticus. If you read four chapters a day, you will read through the entire book in this coming week before we study it together next Sunday. It's a shorter assignment than Genesis or Exodus, but I must admit it is a little harder because of the content in the book. But you'll be amazed at what we will learn together. Same time, same place, same channel next Sunday. Let's pray. God, thank you for teaching us today. Thank you for the book of Exodus that comes alive for us in these practical ways. We, we thank you so much for just revealing these lessons about your own nature, who you are. You are preeminent. 
There are no other gods but You. You're the one and You are the only. And we put You first, above and beyond anyone and anything else in our lives. You are number one. We thank You for Your presence. Why would we go anywhere if You do not go with us? (laughs) It is our desire to walk in step with You each and every day. Thank You for Your provision that You will never call us or lead us to go anywhere where You will not provide everything that is needed for us. And thank You for Your protection that we would look at these universal and timeless principles not as restrictive but as protective, that You love us so much You don't want us to get out in places where we're going to get hurt. You are an amazing God. God, we worship You and we praise You. We honor You and we give You all the glory that You and You alone deserve. You are worthy. You are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.